We've got people that'll stand around that paddock. Uh, one of the horses takes the dump. That's the one they'll bet on because they think we're each pound lighter. So we'll bet. I mean, he probably feels better and he's a pound lighter. Yeah, who knows? Welcome to Second and Ali. I'm Josh Moss, editor of Louisville Magazine. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Eigenheer of Louisville.com. Michelle, finally we've started a podcast. Yeah, we have. Everything's kind of a mess. My mic is on a paint can right now. Outside the windows behind you, that is actually Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Second is on the corner. We're here in the Louisville Magazine, Louisville.com headquarters. Uh, we're finally doing this. It took a while to get it going. Yep. Episode one today, talking all things derby. Do you remember your first derby? Yeah, last year. It was, it was interesting. It was not what I expected. What did you expect, and how was it different from what you expected? I guess I expected it to be very calm, not calm, but like formal, and it totally is not. I walked on the infield and immediately saw a kid with like coke on his face. That sums up derby. My first derby was 2007. This was the year that Street Sense won with Calvin Burrell. He just retired. Happy retirement, Calvin. And all I remember is, for whatever reason, I shaved a mohawk into my head because I thought that's what people should do in the infield, and we went to uh, Subway. You know, they have those huge sandwich bags like that are the shape and size of a Subway sandwich, like a 12-inch. So we got a bunch of those extra bags, took out the sandwiches, filled them all with beer, wrapped in, like, Subway wrappers, put them in a cooler, and brought in, like, two cases of beer to Churchill Downs. This is when they let you bring coolers in, and so that's my first memory, just bringing in, like, 40 beers to Churchill Downs. And the next year in. they banned coolers. And they banned coolers not long <laughs> after that. So let's go from infield to the actual track. I don't mean uh, the track at Churchill Downs. I'm talking about a little track just outside Cincinnati called Belterra, formerly known as River Downs. That's where senior writer and Marshall met jockey Perry Wayne Oots last year while working on a story on Derby Day. Okay, so I follow racing pretty closely. I can recognize most of the big-name jockeys like Victor Espinoza, Mike Smith, John Velasquez. I can pronounce the last names DeSormo and Leperu, but I'd never heard of Oots. When I read his last name for the first time, and that's spelled O-U-Z-T-S, I pronounced it something like Oozitz, Ooz, Ooz what? I had no clue. Oots, Ann corrected me. Oots is 61 years old. He's been a jockey for 42 of those years, and over his career has more than 48,000 starts and more than 6,500 wins, which puts him at number 11 on the all-time wins list for jockeys in the U.S. And he does this all far from Derby's glamour, he says, I like being a big fish in a small pond. So, Ann, tell us, how the heck did you meet this jockey? Well, I was at Belterra Racetrack, which is a racetrack right outside Cincinnati, uh, about a little over a year ago. No, about a year ago. And I was, in the, I was working on a different story. And while I was there, you know, a lot of the jockeys that are in the room are these young guys, a lot of them from Latin America. And then I noticed this one guy. And he was obviously older than a, than a lot of them. Uh, I didn't know how old he was, but I guess he was in his 60s. And, you know, immediately he caught my eye just because of the way he sort of moved. I mean, he's very, like most jockeys, small and strong and sort of wiry, but it was almost like, like the best way I can describe it, he's almost like a little fist when he walks. Like he's just like so tight, like someone who's been on a horse for 42 years, you know. I was curious about him, and I, he always was sort of in the back of my mind. Turns out, long story short, I had 
uh, met his cousin. Uh, you know, horse racing industry is kind of a small industry. Everyone sort of knows one another. And sure enough, I had met his cousin, who was also in the horse racing industry. Uh, her father was Perry Utz's cousin, and uh, her husband knows Perry because he's a jockey. And so she told me about him, and I got to meet him finally. And he's just this sort of, for a guy who's been in racing for 42 years, he's like the most mellow, even-keeled dude I've ever met. And the first time I saw him at, at Belterra a year ago, he had come into the jockey's room kind of in a rage one day because he got kicked off the horse and the ambulance didn't come follow him to pick him up. And so he had to walk a half mile. So he came in the jock's room and was rah, rah, rah. But, uh, I mean, that was like his off day. Like when I, first, when, I, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, this guy's got a temper. But not at all. Nothing. Nothing gets this guy angry. He is just cool, cool, cool. Gets on the horse, rides, gets off, does his thing. When you mentioned ambulance, he describes this profession as the only one where an ambulance follows you around while you're working. Right. And he sustained a lot of injuries over his career, as many jockeys have. Pretty much any jockey I've talked to has fallen off a horse, has what people outside of the profession would call like a horror story injury. Uh, Oots has has shattered 40 bones, Mm -hmm. had 10 surgeries, a broken back that compacted him from 5'2 down to 5'1". A horse once kicked him in the eye. What did that do to him? A lot. <laughs> you write that it swelled his face to the size of a pumpkin. That's right, yeah. And he was in the ICU for almost a week, I think, without injury. Well, the one that I thought was the worst is a horse stepped in my eye. Oh. Shattered this whole eye socket around here. Yeah. And um, I got a metal plate around this whole eye. Broke my nose, broke my shoulder, I broke my jaw all in the same spill. And I was in the hospital. 10 days. It was intensive care for five days and they had to put a trach in because I broke my nose and they had to pack it and they wired my jaw shut so I couldn't breathe. That was pretty scary. The only time in my whole career that I actually thought, you know, I might ought to do something else before I get killed doing this. And that was the worst one, but it only took two months to recover. You know, that's all I was off was two months and I was back riding. Like I said, after about three weeks, I never thought about it again. So do you think he ever seriously considered leaving this profession because of injuries? That, I mean, that's the crazy, it's so, it's so interesting talking to him. I mean, all jockeys go through these sort of horrific injuries. And some of them end up stopping after a while, I think, because their bodies just break down. But Perry Oots just doesn't. He told me that after that injury, he considered it for like, in the hospital, in the ICU, when he was in so much pain, he said it was the worst pain he'd ever been in. He said he considered it for like a day, maybe a week. But then three weeks later, he was like done. And that memory just gets pushed or that whole notion gets pushed to the back of his brain. And, you know, a lot of jockeys say that, that you don't, you can't ride with fear. You just can't because every time you get on that horse, something could happen and you can't let that sort of choke you, you know. Uh, But no, he never, he never let injuries stop him. And even his wife, you know, who's also in the horse racing industry, I asked her after that injury, surely you had to think, okay, my husband has to get out of this. But she said, no, if anything, she thought, gosh, I hope you can get back into this because he loves it so much. I hope he heals, which is just crazy to think about. But you know, it, it takes a certain breed, I guess. <laughs> and so he's 61 he is, yeah. now. Mm-hmm. What does he sort of say about that? About being 61? Well, you know, to him, it's, it's, again, it's sort of like classic of Perry Oot's answer when you bring it up. It's sort of, it is what it is. You know, I'm just going to keep going and going and going. But, you know, he is 61, and uh, people are starting to take notice, and uh, especially for his agent, that's 
becoming a little bit worrisome. There's nothing you can do about it, of course. You know, and like even in your article, you've got to mention it because yeah. it's part of the story. But I don't like things that focus on it. Yeah. You know, and bring out the attention because it's just, it doesn't help us. You know, it doesn't help at all. And what he's trying to do, they don't call you the Iron Man unless you try to do something hard. And it's very hard, very hard. Right. And uh, it doesn't take much of a drop off in business before it's, it just goes. Once a little bit starts to go, it's gone in the blink of an eye. And all of a sudden, you're done. Can you kind of give us an idea of how much money a jockey like Perry can make? Maybe not even on a day where he's winning a lot, but mm -hmm. say he's on a horse that finishes last. Like, how much money is he making? Right. Well, it depends on the track, but the you know the mount fee is anywhere from like thirty-five bucks to like sixty-five dollars. So he could go out conceivably he could make sixty-five bucks in a day. Or and since racing, you know, a lot of these tracks have cut back on the days that they're racing. So while he used to race five or six days a week several years ago, you know, decades ago, now it's three days a week. So. You really have to be getting a ton of mounts and winning a lot. And, you know, he's he makes right now, I believe, with all of his wins and stuff, he probably is earning about, I think he's earning about like 100000 a little over 100000 a year or something like that. So he's making a good living mm -hmm. for sure. Um, but, you know, for a lot of jockeys who aren't as, as successful as him, it's a, it is a hard way to make a living. How much of his love of racing is sort of tied into, like, routine? So many people in racing – whether it's trainers or hot walkers, jockeys, they do the same thing mm -hmm. every day. And I, just being around them, it seems like such a draw. And it's just kind of ingrained in who they are. Did you notice that with him as well? Yes, he is totally a creature of routine. Uh, he eats the same thing every day, and he has been doing so for decades. I mean, he says he has eaten the same thing for like 40 years, which is coffee with sweet and low and a sweet roll in the morning, half of a sandwich, white bread with two ham slices for lunch, he might have some snacks, and then, like, he says he's a meat and potatoes guy, so he has some sort of meat and potatoes dinner and one chocolate ice cream bar at night. He never pigs out, has not touched alcohol in 25 years because uh, he said that that just, it, it, um, it, it was putting on too much weight. You know, he wasn't able to keep the weight off if he drank, so he stopped that. And, you know, he, he gets up on pretty much every morning. He does take Mondays off, but every other day he's, he's at the track in the mornings working out the horses. You know, and on race day, he's, you know, doing his thing and goes home, goes to bed. You know, he's just, every day is, is the same, the same, the same. Um, and that's probably why he's been successful, too, is that he he doesn't uh, mess around with new diets and new fads, new this, new that. It's like he does what works for him, and that's that. Is he considering retiring? Do you think someone like him would be happy in retirement? I mean, I asked him what that first day would be like when he woke up and he realized he wasn't racing anymore. And he said he'd be really sad because he's been doing this. You know, he said this often in my time with him. He's been doing this every day since he was 18 years old. And, you know, of course he has to be thinking about retirement because he's 61. And eventually uh, his age will become so much of a liability that people just won't mount him or he might get hurt. So he thinks about it, but he really wants to get to 7,000 wins. That would put him at number eight on the most winningest jockeys list. And, you know, but he'd probably keep going if he could. He'd probably go till he's 80 if he could. Um, so, yeah, he thinks about it. You know, he thinks about maybe going down to Florida. But the funny thing is he, if him and his wife go down to Florida, he, they want to live by a track so that he can maybe at least gallop the horses in the morning and, you know, that sort of thing. So it'll just always be in his blood. Do you think he'll change his diet once he retires? 
Probably not, and I asked him that. Yeah, I've been doing this every single day since I was 18 years old. Yeah. Every day, without fail. I probably will eat the same no matter what. And I might I eat a whole sandwich for lunch instead of a half. Come out, work hard, keep trying to win. You can read senior writer Ann Marshall's profile of jockey Perry Wayne Oots titled Racing Machine in the Derby issue. Now, let's get poetic. Mother's Derby Party, 1998 Mother grew mint in the garden for juleps. I asked about the taste. She said, hush, go to bed. She said, mint spoke at night. Horses spoke, cigars spoke, to grown-ups. Their words drifted from the living room to the confines of my twin bed. Trifecta, neck and neck. Stakes, Thunder Gulch. I thought Mint taught those words. Mint gave a reason for being in the bright party. I snuck out my window into moonlight. I tore Mint from the dirt. I shoved whole plants into my mouth. Roots like hair, stems like bones, leaves like severed eyelids. But dirt and mint tasted like dirt and mint. Yellow light spilled from the kitchen window, staining the moon. I sat on the wet ground, just outside the glow, tonguing my dirty baby teeth, wondering if I'd ever get that taste out of my mouth. That was associate editor Dylan Jones reading his poem, Mother's Derby Party, 1998. His piece, Alone Together, about what keeps people coming to the off-track betting at Churchill Downs, is in the Derby issue. Thunder over Louisville is coming up this weekend, Saturday the 23rd. I was just reading in the magazine about Thundasia Turner, the girl who was born at Thunder in 2000. Can you imagine that, being um, born on a sidewalk at Thunder over Louisville? That sounds horrifying because it is incredibly unsanitary there. <laughs> Thunder in general or like the sidewalk birth? Mostly thunder in general. I mean, birth is gross, but that's gross anywhere. But have you been in a porta potty at Thunder? Uh, I have not. Have you seen a trash can at Thunder? That I have seen. I like. So you don't like thunder? You're not a thunder fan? No, I, literally, this is why I'm afraid of porta potties. See, I love it. I like the planes. I think fireworks are cool. Super kid friendly. Uh, so yeah, I'm all in on thunder. This year, I'm actually looking forward to Thunder. Um, the Louisville Orchestra is doing the soundtrack, and our associate editor of the magazine, Ariel Christian, got to sit down with Teddy Abrams to talk about it. So, Teddy, tell me about the soundtrack for Thunder this year. Some of the great classic works of the past, pieces by Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, to works of, of the present era in every possible genre. So the whole point of this was to demonstrate that your Louisville Orchestra can play literally any kind of music and play it beautifully and brilliantly and, and inspire uh, not just, I think, beautiful fireworks, but all the people listening to it. So there is a remarkably diverse range of music, and I, I couldn't even list the number of composers. I mean, it's dozens and dozens of composers from throughout the entire span of, of music history. Did I hear the orchestra is playing a Katy Perry song? What? I mean, she has one song that certainly makes sense to do when you have a fireworks show. So I'm sure you can figure out which one that is.
Actually, it's fun for her song because I actually had to arrange it um, for the orchestra. Right. I had to create the arrangements for all these different pieces, including a Katy Perry song, a My Morning Jacket song, from scratch because they didn't necessarily exist. It turns out Katy Perry sounds really good with like a grooving woodwind section. Like mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you, if you hear the woodwind section playing, you'll think it is the recording at first. You'll, you'll be so blown right. away. Yeah, bassoons actually really have the sound. So you can instruct the musicians to do anything as, the, as a composer or arranger. So I was really listening for, okay, how do I recreate that? Almost as if I was tasting a dish that um, I didn't know what the ingredients were. I had to reverse engineer that and say, wait, do you think if I put in some more vanilla or maybe it's cardamom, maybe that would get that exact flavor. And so that's what I was doing. So the bassoons are like the cardamom. Clarinets and bassoons give that opening. opening little groove. Yeah, it works, it works surprisingly well. Pretty good, right? You've got to think about the the kind of music that goes well with fireworks. I mean, it's it's the same thing with any collaboration. I mean, if you're doing something with uh, ballet dancers or opera singers or a giant rock band, whatever whatever the sounds you're working with, you've got to find uh, the I think the the kind of color scheme that works with with your setting that works with your event and fireworks are i mean they're big mm-hmm. they're they're dramatic and uh you have to have music that's going to stand up to that i i think the orchestra is the ideal uh instrument i would say to uh to create a, a backdrop for the kind of brilliant fireworks that we know um we're capable of here in louisville Listen to his voice. MJ's voice is just so percussive. When you look at um, the the use of the drum set, the use of the guitars, uh, you're dealing with a sound that um, is not easily replicated in, in the orchestra. Most of the strings are they don't sound like an electric guitar, for instance. That's a very different kind of sound. Electric guitars uh, tend to have a lot more kind of twang, a lot more of that percussive element, a lot more articulation, where strings kind of breathe into notes. So you have to think about a technique with the bow or a technique uh, with with your orchestration that's going to account for that kind of electronic sound, which is a lot more forward. By this point, you shouldn't even notice that there are no words. Hopefully, if I've done my job correctly. Yeah, exactly. As a writer listening to music, I naturally go to the lyrics first. Always have. Big folk fan here. When arranging My Morning Jackets, One Big Holiday, did you use the lyrics to fuel your direction? It's it's interesting because I come to the lyrics very late. I'm an extremely um, 
kind of contrapuntal listener. And what that means is that I listen to the tones and the way they interact with each other, not just one line, but all the lines. So I'll pick up on things about, uh, you know, how, how different lines of music were created or how they're copied or, or related to each other in, in a piece of music. So I'm looking at the construction of it when I actually might not notice, even if I've heard it over and over and over again, what they're singing about at all. There's something about this song that's, you know, there's a kind of, I would say, broad a broad quality to it. And I know that's not a very specific emotion like happy or sad, but there's this kind of breadth and, and vastness to it that it feels like you're in this groove, almost like a train-like groove that just keeps pushing. You don't, you don't see a start or finish to it. There are things probably most people don't notice about the bass line. If you really focus on it, you can tell. recreate that on the upright bass, I often add in timpani. Timpani are the big drums in the back. They're the really also known as kettle drums. They're all copper and with a white top. Um, and having the timpani play along with the basses can actually really make it sound like, uh, like a bass guitar, like an electric bass guitar. All right, now we're going to hear the Louisville Orchestra's rendition of One Big Holiday. Associate Editor Ariel Christian's story, Sound to Spark. Check out the Derby issue. All right, Michelle, question. Do you okay. bet on horse racing? No, I'm actually really afraid of gambling. Why? Um, well, I just kind of deep down know that if I won, I would be an addict. And um, somebody suggested to me one time that it might be because I'm Asian, <laughs> which hadn't occurred to me. And then I said something to my mom, and she was like, yeah, why do you think I don't go to the casino? And I said, Mom, do you have a gambling problem? And she said, yeah, so maybe this is a real risk, and I just shouldn't, I shouldn't try. I shouldn't open that door. So you're the per perfect person to ask this question to. So I've got a list of the six horses who are favored so far in this year's Derby. They did this thing called Future Bets, where they release odds way far out from the Derby. So I'm going to read these names to you. And just based on name alone, who do you think could win the Derby this year for right. 2016? Okay. Okay, here's our names. Mohamed, Nyquist, Cupid, Danzing Candy, Destin, and More Spirit. More is spelled M-O-R. They dropped the E for whatever reason. Nyquist speaks to me. I don't know what that means, but for whatever reason, it sounds like a winner. 
So I asked the same question to a local classroom of second graders, and we got some really interesting responses. Cupid, anybody? Why not? Because I think that at the end of the race, that his heart's going to be broken. I like Cupid because it sounds like the horse can do the Cupid stuff. What about the name Nyquist? Sounds cool because it... It sounds like it runs in the night. I like dance and candy because I love to dance, and candy is my favorite thing because I love chocolate. Why do you like this name? Why do you like the name Mohamed? Because I heard, overheard y'all and you said that that's the top horse. <laughs> Fair enough. And more spirit. That's the Ooh, one I like that more I spirit because it sounds like it got more spirit. More I like candy. all of them. Who knows what the Kentucky Derby is? Explain it. What is it? It's where um, the horses run in the derby, and then the winner gets um, roses. Do you know what a triple crown is? No. <laughs> What's the triple crown? It's a crown that has like a, another crown that's on top of it. How long do you, How long does the race last? On the last it's like like two days. No, two days? No, it lasts until like for, they have they have a break. Till my. No, no, no. I remember when I saw it, it was four. Four what? Four minutes, about four hours. And that's what, you know the lucky winner was? Who? You won the derby? And that's our show. We uh, we finished episode one. Did we? Did we do it? I think it sounded okay. I think it sounded right. Yeah. Um, be sure to check it out on Louisville.com and to subscribe on iTunes. And do not miss the Derby issue of Louisville Magazine. And here's Teddy Abrams and the Louisville Orchestra playing their version of My Morning Jacket's One Big Holiday. See you for episode two. And what else is in the Derby what issue? What else is in the Derby issue? A backside sketchbook by local artist Douglas Miller. Emerging fashion designers styling their Derby muses. Chef recipes for your Derby party. An essay from longtime New York Times turf writer Joe Drake. Brain tacos. Brain tacos near Churchill Downs. And much more. And much more. And much more. Second and Ali is a production of Louisville Magazine and Louisville.com. Our theme song was written and performed by art director Suki Anderson and circulation manager Amber Thieneman and recorded by Rob Collier. Louisville Magazine publishes each month. To subscribe, call 502-625-0100. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and any other social media platforms you can think of, even the ones that don't exist yet, at Louisville Mag and at Louisville Com.